Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Writing is the best way that I can communicate. And I think I learned that really early on, that social interactions, like I would come away from it feeling like, "Uh, I didn't exactly articulate myself in the way that I wanted to, or I could see that that there was a misunderstanding, or I just really didn't feel like I had verbal language that would fit the playground (laughs) to describe, you know, like what I'm thinking and how I'm seeing the world. So I've always needed to process thoughts in that way. That was Morgan Parker. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. We have been off for about two months now. January and a little bit of February is the only time this podcast takes a break. Despite everyone's wishes on the show to take more breaks, um, we do about 45 of these a year every Sunday morning. If you have not listened to the show before, welcome. If you have been listening, welcome back. 2020 is going to be a big year, and we're going to do our best to keep up with it. Apparently, in the past two months, some big things have happened. In my notes, I have a few things written down, including our president, who has not been impeached. Bong Joon-ho won Best Director, and Parasite won Best Picture. Are those things equally important to Trump's lack of impeachment? I think so. RuPaul hosted SNL. That was big. Kobe Bryant passed away. Maybe the second best player of all time. That was horrendous and uh, heartbreaking. 
other things happened too, but those are the big highlights uh, in case you somehow missed them. Oh, there's a coronavirus. I think they changed the name as of two days ago. I don't know the new name. I should. I don't. But what's most important is that you're here right now, and I want to thank you for being here. I also want to say I'm glad to start off the show in 2020 with Morgan Parker. She is a poet, a novelist, an essayist. She is, above all, a fantastic writer. If you are like me, you are not a poetry scholar. You are not a literary critic. I enjoy a Walt Whitman, a Langston Hughes, a Sylvia Plath, like any sensible person, but I don't know a whole much about poetry. I never got into Emily Dickinson. I do feel some residual Catholic guilt about that, but not that much guilt, if I'm honest. I have read a fair bit of Morgan's work. There are two poetry collections from Parker I especially love. One is called There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, obviously a genius title. The second, which came out last year through Tin House, is called Magical Negro. If you have not read Morgan's work, you can do so at morganparker.com. You can also buy either of those books wherever you get books. She is a fantastic writer, and I think what I most responded to is the way she couches drama and comedy. There is this kind of deep trauma and sadness within her work, especially in Magical Negro, but it's expressed with a real sense of humor. Her writing, at least for me, really did upset me and trouble me and stay with me, and then it made me laugh again and again, and then suddenly you're in this strange situation where you have to reconcile the pain with the jokes, and uh, I hoped this conversation would resemble that juxtaposition, but you will have to be the judge of that. Before we get into it, in listening back on the edit of this episode, I noticed a difference in the way I was asking questions. Something felt off. I wasn't sure if I was rusty or out of practice, and then I figured it out. For the past two months, my only source of podcasting has come every morning, in the shower, listening to Michael Barbaro on The Daily. If you have not heard of the show, I would urge you to seek it out. If you have heard of it, you know what I'm talking about. He has this kind of word-by-word rhythm that I find at once bizarre and oddly charming. It goes something like this. And again, I'm not great at impressions, but it sounds something like this. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, poet Morgan Parker on the changing landscape of contemporary poetry and why mass audiences that are predominantly white must re-evaluate how they approach work made by people that do not look like them. It's Sunday, February 16th. That's my impression. Don't ask me to do another one. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Welcome back to the show. I am excited to do this for the next 10 months. I'm bad at math. It's going to be a great year, even if it's not a great year. You know what I mean? We'll do our best to keep up and uh, keep this thing going. So finally, here is Morgan Parker.
Morgan Parker, you are the first person to come on the show in 2020. Wow. How do you feel? Great. (laughs) (laughs) It means a lot more to me than it does to you, probably. I mean, it's a very interesting tone to set, but... I think it's going to be a great episode. You're going to set a high bar for future guests. Great. Um, I want to start with something you said in an interview. You called There Are More Beautiful Things in Beyonce uh, an archive of the Obama era. How would you describe this book, Magical Negro? Mm. It doesn't correspond to a time period in the way that There Are More Beautiful Things than Beyonce did. And when I was writing both books, I wasn't thinking about that. It wasn't until after There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce came out at the end of Obama's presidency that I kind of saw how it was really shaped by that particular era and the pop culture involved and um, obviously like Beyonce and Jay-Z sitting with Obama's. This book, I mean, it spans an absurd amount of time into the future and, you know, from the slave ship. So it's not necessarily an archive of a particular um, era. It's more like the spirit of many eras and how they interact with each other. I thought about this book as a kind of ethnography. That's like the nerd half of me that like studied anthro. And I really thought about it as like making a catalog and, and, you know, the let us now praise famous men. There's a nod that's let us now praise famous magical Negroes. So really this idea of documenting a culture in its own words, Mm -hmm. um, like from the inside, kind of a personal ethnography, I guess. You said the nerd half of you. Are there two parts here? No, I mean, the nerd is like 90%, I guess. I didn't mean to call you out on that right away. (laughs) You're correct. (laughs) Minute three into the interview. Yep. Kind of think full nerd. About, yeah. (laughs) Read your book, read your poetry. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Starting 2020 off with an insult. Um, okay, it's not an insult it's at all. It's not. Come on, yeah. I have a master's degree in poems. I like, know. there's nothing. No, I think it's wonderful. Than that. But it did start particularly early for you because you grew up and you had a brother who played a lot of sports, and your parents were extremely vigilant about making you try other things in all your things. life. I have a list that includes ballet, gymnastics, soccer, swim team, voice lessons. Someone tried that one on me. Oh, man. And you kept saying to them, I hear you, but I'd rather go to the library, even on Saturdays. My parents wish I was that. (laughs) Um, Walk me through you as a kid, knowing that you needed to go to the library and read and write. Writing is the best way that I can communicate. And I think I learned that really early on that... Um, social interactions, like I would come away from it feeling like uh, I didn't exactly articulate myself in the way that I wanted to, or I could see that that there was a misunderstanding, or I just really didn't feel like I had verbal language that would fit the playground <laughs> to describe, you know, like what I'm thinking and and how I'm seeing the world. So I've always needed to process thoughts in that way. And a lot of it is just kind of growing up in a really small suburb that was like very just vanilla mayonnaise sandwich. Um, And like, I mean white, but I also mean just like basic, like everyone is the same. I do mean white, 
but also. But, yeah, <laughs> in addition. <laughs> so it really was me just kind of thinking, I'm pretty sure there's other stuff out there, mm-hmm. and I want to know about it. That's not mayonnaise sandwich. Exactly. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people, kids go to literature to escape and to explore, like, other worlds. And I think, for me, I've always gone to literature to feel connected Not to enter a new world, but to see my own world in a new way. Why were your parents against that? I think it was more just like, we don't believe you, child, that you're like nine and being like, I will be an author one day. Like, I can't blame them. But also now I'm like, see, you should have just let me go to the library. Was there ever a point, maybe in high school, where your parents believed you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, after spending a certain amount of years with me, they're kind of like, oh, this kid's up to something else. And maybe we don't understand it, but all we can do is support a thing that she's passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, you know, as I've gotten older, there is like more and more things where they're like, oh, OK, you're like really actually doing something. But I think before it was just a matter of, you know, I grew up and struggled with depression and anxiety. So for them, it was just like she has this other world where she can express herself and be passionate and excited about things. And I kind of grew up feeling OK with the fact that other people didn't understand. What did you think they didn't understand? I do not have like an art artist family or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just a little bit out of left field for me to only see that the world through that lens. You right. know, um, I'm not interested in like watching the game with everyone else. And I'm really, really committed to exploring the world as an artist. And I think that's like a new thing for folks in my community to understand mm-hmm. as like a viable way to move through the world. Even me, you know, I was kind of like making it up as I went along. So I think there's such a premium in small communities like that on just being sociable and popular. And like, I don't mean popular as in like cool kid, but I think I mean it as like palatable. Agreeable. Mm -hmm. And I, as much as I, you know, got really, really good at being palatable, I guess, there was always part of me that just like wasn't, it wasn't ever going to be the thing that you're expecting and and the kind of attitude you're used to getting mm-hmm. from a person my age. Well, please don't think you have to be palatable here. It's over. That whole part of my life right. is over. Close the chapter. I don't think anyone would use that word to describe me. <laughs> uh, so far I say yes. Okay. Um, well, we have 45 more minutes. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious because you described where you grew up as the mayonnaise sandwich. How white was it? Like... We were the only black family on our... You were? Yeah, on our Mm cul-de-sac. So, yeah. I was like one of maybe five, six Mm -hmm. black kids in my class. And like most of them I wasn't friends with. Um, We couldn't get BSU together. We like had one meeting and everyone's like, we don't have to do this, right? (laughs) (laughs) What's the point? Um, Yeah, it was... 
it was intense. And my young adult novel is mostly grappling with this, like this idea of figuring out what your identity is when you don't see it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And you've spent your whole life trying to find your identity within a very small and white space. And I think that's different than finding yourself, like finding yourself within the confines of something versus finding yourself in the world is very different. Now that you're at this place in your life, in your career, and and especially since you're writing this book, when you're reflecting and looking back at that time, is there a moment or a series of moments that you can pinpoint when you realize, oh, I, I am not exactly like the people around me? I mean, I got made fun of in like third grade for wearing a blazer. I remember someone came up to me and was like, are you an attorney? And I was like, what is that word? I think like her parents were getting divorced at the time. So she was like, attorney, new vocab word. Um, is that what you said to her? Your parents no, I was divorced? just like, what's an attorney? And then I had to like process that. <laughs> um, but that wasn't about race explicitly, was it? No. Um, but I think I respond to feeling different by refocusing my attention, I guess, if that makes sense. Trying to build my own, like, safety, mm. whether it's, like, doing a school newspaper by myself <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. And I remember a girl pouring sand in my hair in kindergarten, I think. Maybe preschool. And I would, like, get really upset And then be like, my mom said you can't do this anymore. It's such a thing to wash my hair. And she has to do it every day when you're poor. And the girl kept doing it. And I would, like, cry and be like, you don't understand. It's, like, a thing. (laughs) Like, (laughs) my mom cannot do this every night. Uh, Things like that. A kid asked me if I taste like chocolate. I mean, this is all Mm -hmm. standard par for the course. What do you say to that, by the way? No, do you taste like vanilla? That's I remember that's what I said. I was like, should we test it out? I like how the <laughs> sand problem, you describe it almost as like a logistical scheduling issue where your <laughs> mother, she's not going to be able to fit that in. It's just like, I know I'm going to get in trouble for like messing up my hair this way. Mm-hmm. And then I feel bad because I'm like, I can't control it. She pours it. But it, it is like, a, it's not just like washing white girl hair. You can't mm-hmm. just do it every day before preschool. <laughs> yeah, tons of stuff like that. Just little things that things that I didn't even really pick on until I had a larger group of black friends, you know? And is that when you went to college in New York? Yeah, which, duh. <laughs> so you double major in anthropology and uh, literature? Yeah, creative writing. Creative writing. I thought I was going to be an English major, but mm-hmm. there were too many like requirements of reading like Elizabethan whatever. Oh, yeah. No, and I no, was no. like, <laughs> I don't want to read half of this. There was like a whole section of Chaucer that you had to do. And I was like, no, this no. is not... I still haven't. Is that okay? You're fine. I feel bad. I mean, I'm not a poet, so I don't feel that bad. No. You're a poet. But... You don't have to. No. No. I do what I want. Right. That's, <laughs> That's what being a poet is about. Really? Oh, is, is that, I mean, in my mind. Is that your guiding principle? Yep. That's my artist statement. <laughs> I don't, I actually, I want to go to this. I'm skipping around, but I think this is actually one of your guiding principles. Uh, you said this in an interview back in 2016. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I write out of trying to archive and record my particular experience. It would feel false if I didn't include all those things that really shape contemporary life. I'm not the first person to do that. O'Hara did that. Elliot did that. I don't really see what is so difficult for folks to grasp about it, but I think it's a debate wrapped up in class and race and what constitutes high and low art. If I said that in 2016, I was thinking a lot about the Beyonce book and people, I remember people being like, is this poetry? Can you write poetry about uh-huh. Beyonce? Like it was this big revelation. Yeah. And even when I was in grad school, I turned in some of those poems and poems like about Jay-Z. And my professor was like, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, okay, Pulitzer winner, but like, this is what I'm doing. I tried doing like a regular poem, like I used Bougainvillea or something. I think it's interesting how people get turned off really easily. Mm. Um, And again, that obviously is wrapped up in the body that I'm in. You know, I had classmates who were playing with pop culture references and they didn't get this, you know, they're like, they look like you, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So it's a different thing. And of course, like that's O'Hare's whole thing. And I kind of thought, it made sense for me to write in that language because I always want to use my own voice. It doesn't work if I'm trying to like put on poetry voice. Um, And that's one thing that I try to remember in my writing process. But it's interesting how me using my own voice suddenly to um, certain outside readers means that it's like not poetic. Mm -hmm. Um, That's coded language, you know, Like, how is writing about Beyonce different than writing about some sculpture in the Met? I'm approaching them in the same way. But the fact that people can't wrap their head around one being equal to the other is interesting to me, but troubling. Because we understand that artists are here to help us understand the world that we're in. And also, like, Google is around now. So, Mm -hmm. like... I feel like I took a class on the wasteland where we had to have, like, a whole other book to understand the context of the wasteland. And now people can just, you know, and yet they're like, but what if people don't know who Beyonce is? That's too bad. Like, huh? Where have you been? Did you just, are you, were you cryogenically frozen? Like, what's up? Under the rock. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I don't think that has to be my concern as an artist. That's the other thing that where it's like... I'm being asked to appeal to the masses. Being asked by who? I guess critics or um, a general reader. I Mm -hmm. I think that um, any kind of pushback I get or folks who say, like, that's not for me or I don't I'm not really into poetry or I don't think this is this is too jokey or whatever people say um, to write it off. People talk a lot about they didn't relate white people I mean talk a lot about how they didn't relate and to your writing to my writing which is like again a very coded thing because I do think that I'm speaking to a large audience of people but I'm also not doing backflips to like take a white person by the hand and tour guide them through my blackness and You know, I read so much white stuff. I know everything about white people, you know, and I don't understand. Like, I can find 
myself and my experiences in literature written by white people and about white people. But the fact that that can't be reciprocated is sad to me. But I think often that's what it is. It's like, oh, this I can't really relate. And it's not basically it's not about me. So I can't Mm -hmm. read it or it's not wide enough for me to just like apply to everything like hotel art or something. Um, What did you say? Hotel art. Is that art in hotels? I think about bad poetry as like hotel art. Uh, it's like inoffensive, but it's like not stimulating. Well, I think it is offensive. It was, it's offensive to us, but it's not like. What does that no mean? Are, are we like elitist now? Probably. Okay. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and be like, I'm not. But okay. it is a thing that is not like it's not trying to push anyone's buttons. Mm-hmm. It's not trying to like make any grand statements. It's just like there to be kind of pleasant. Um, And I think that's what people expect from poems a lot of the time, that it's like, oh, it sounds really nice. And it's like, hmm, interesting, birds and trees. And that's not what I'm, I don't give any shits about that. I'm falling asleep to that one for sure. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there has to be some retraining since white people are the majority, you know, audience? yeah. I would like that. Because you said growing up and and even now you watch and consume Mm -hmm. art made by and starring presenting white people. Yeah. And I know how to watch it and watch it critically, but also watch it openly and to find value, but also understand the differences in how it was made and how I might make something. Mm -hmm. I think also that a big part of it is stepping back from that idea of, like, majority. And so, like, this idea of I'm the majority audience, so why am I not understanding this? Mm -hmm. Therefore, this is not valuable because it's not reflecting the majority audience, which is, like, white women or whatever. But it's not necessarily my largest audiences. And there you'd be surprised how, because writing and the authors that are getting shine are more writers of color, we're seeing audiences that are larger. And so there's a little bit of needing the white reader to step back a little bit and understand what it's like to enter art from a totally different place and to be not like the expert on things, like to read something and see a language that you don't understand. And like, you can't write it off from that. Um, How do we get to a place where people are curious instead of intimidated? That's a fantastic question. I mean, for me, it always goes back to empathy. And I think that's what literature in particular is so good at doing is inspiring empathy. And the more you learn about other people's lives and, and thought patterns and viewpoints, the more you can understand that you're not, A, not the only person in the world, and that other people feel. And I think often that's what we forget in order to really consume art openly and also just live as a responsible citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I often find, like, that's the missing piece, like the inability to see another person as equal. It's really that simple. And I mean that in various ways, like not Civil Rights Act ways, but like, you know, just hold on. (laughs) 
I mean that too, but like you thought I was sitting here, and I thought you thought maybe I no thought no civil rights. No, I didn't think that you thought that. I'm just clarifying. <laughs> it's just that the minute people hear the word equality, it's like, oh, I get it. Okay, but that's not what I'm talking. I'm about. I'm just worried now. People at home are like, oh, I was kind of thinking that. If they not. were, then I just clarified. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I'm not if, talking and, about the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> and if you thought that, I love you for listening, but I, I'm a little concerned. <laughs> Much respect, but that's I'm just concerned. I mean, I think so many of our issues have been latent, and they've just gone, like, untreated. You know, um, the fact that we are still having trouble approaching literature by the other capital O is just absurd (laughs) to Mm me. And I mean, for one, with poetry, I think the whole world needs to change the way that it thinks about poetry. And I think we teach poetry backwards. I hated poetry until like halfway through college, honestly. And I still am kind of like, I don't like this. (laughs) You know, I go to readings and I'm like, this is terrible why am i making my life this way Mm -hmm. but it's because you know i'm thinking that it's chaucer and like what's that guy long longfellow oh no you know what i mean and and even when we were learning poetry in like high school the teachers didn't seem they were kind of like oh let's get through this yeah to get to the next thing they presented it as something that solely existed in the past Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and is a requirement for the curriculum. Yes, but not helpful in any way to understanding the world. Yes. And also, I remember it being really taught as like a puzzle. Like, what does this mean? And it's like a trick question. When I teach now, it's really hard because I'm asking my students what they see and they're like, what's the right answer? I want to go to something you said. Sophomore year of college... A professor named Josh Bell. Yes, he's great. Encouraged you to write. I'm thinking now, you go to these readings. You got here in part because of encouragement from others, mostly because of your hard work. You have labored over the writing weeks, months, sometimes years. I'm interested in what happens at these readings because there is a woman who you did an interview with uh, and she attended your talk for this book at the uh, 92nd Street Y in New York. Uh, Sasha Bonet, I think is her oh, name. Oh, yeah. She that desc- was a fun one. She described her experience sitting in between two white women. It was like watching Get Out in the theater. <laughs> she said they were laughing at the wrong bits and looking over at me for approval. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> it's funny. I like. I had the same... And I wrote a little bit about this, the same experience when I was seeing Slave Play by Jeremy O'Harris. And I was like, this is part of the art. And I always think that, too. Like, I go to my readings and I'm just like, white women are the enemy. And I'm, like, looking at white women in the face. And that's, like, part of, it's part of consuming the art is, like, pressing buttons in that way. And the audience experience together is a whole other layer Um that I'm considering when I'm writing because art is not just like what's on the page, but it's like what happens when it's in the world and spoken out loud um, and heard by a lot of different people at the same time. It is weird. And this book is intense. 
like I can't read it straight through and I fucking wrote it. So mm-hmm. it's a lot. And it, it's it's, it's uh, a lot. It's a lot. And it's it's hard. It's hard and it's not comfortable and it's not concerned with making anyone comfortable, not even me. So the readings are just very intense. And I, I keep being like, I should put more jokes in, then have like these weird little comedy bits between the poems. Because how many times can you just be like, I hate myself. <laughs> you know, like mm. it's just uh, quite a bit. So I end up performing a lot more with this book. Um, so I read Now More Than Ever, which when I read it, I don't it's a whole thing mm-hmm. every single time. Uh, once I laid on the ground, multiple times, I just, like, leave. Like, I went out the doors of the MoMA and was still saying ever and ever and ever. So it is, like, a very intense experience. And a, a few of them are like that, where I kind of, like, freestyle or I or will change it up in the live moment. And part of that is making sure that the audience is right there with me. So with Now More Than Ever, I don't know how many. It was in a review. Someone, like, counted the Evers. But I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I just kept adding them. And so I really adjust the amount of time I spend on each poem. And it's partially because I'm looking at the audience. I see their realization of... um you know, the content, like understanding intellectually what I'm saying. And then there's a a moment of discomfort where they're like, oh, she's still going. And I can see people like nodding their heads like, oh, okay, I get it. It's going on longer. But then there's another couple minutes where then people are just like, uh, (laughs) what's happening? (laughs) Can I leave ever? And that's when, you know, you can see the audience of color getting uncomfortable too, but then they're like, oh, yes, yes, I understand. And the white people are kind of like, it's scary. And they don't, to shock people with art is like what it's about. Because then they have to confront why they're uncomfortable. And um, you can't just hear the poem and say, oh, yeah, I get it. You have to like live inside the poem. And the understanding of it becomes being uncomfortable. I can't accurately make readers feel uncomfortable by just saying how uncomfortable I am. Trust me, I've tried. But (laughs) the best way to do it is to make them uncomfortable as well. Um, And that's really the hard work as an artist to really manipulate emotions. And that's why it has to do with what's on the page, but also what's in person. Mm. Um, Which is scary, you know, because I have to be this kind of instigator You know, when I'm, like, asking everyone to praise me and, like, clap. But, you know, you'd be surprised. White women love to, like, have me yell at them. They do? Yeah. I feel like they, like, I don't know. It's, It's, like, they feel like it's rightful or something. They're like, yeah, that makes, you're allowed to say all this and we don't mean it and whatever. I don't know. Well, I ask because you also said in the same interview (laughs) (laughs) that, White women really like the Beyonce book. Oh, my God, they love it. I mean, that book is focuses a lot more on womanhood, period. Yes. And, like, so they love— They have a stake in that. They're like, feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they remove the black part in front. Yeah. And then feminism becomes white feminism. We all know this has been an issue since the beginning of feminism. Yeah. Um, that was really interesting to me. And I was like, oh, of course. Um, but then you said— when it comes to this book, that you fear they may not 
come along for the ride? It's a different response. A lot have. And, you know, obviously, if you're expecting sequins and, yeah, all of that, you're not getting that here. It's it's a lot of the same concerns, but it's spoken in a different way and dressed up in a different outfit. And a lot of them have responded to that. But I know there's some where it's like, oh, a poetry book about Beyonce. And then that kind of like wears off and mm-hmm. whatever. So I think that was the fear that I was responding to, this idea of like, I know you, and I was thinking this about all my audiences. Like the last book, it's dark, but it's a lot more fun and it feels a lot more fun to people. Um, and I was like, this is no fun at all. It's just death after death. So there was a fear that, you know, now that I've built an audience, I'm going to alienate them. <laughs> and that's a hard thing to deal with as an artist because I want to always be making something new. But every time you're making something new, there's a fear that no one will respond to it. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. If you're on your telephone or computer, I want you to do something for me. I want you to Google this, Diana Ross eating a rib in Alabama. If you want to make it easier, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com and uh, click the Morgan Parker page. On it, you will see an image of Diana Ross eating a rib in Alabama circa 1997. I want you to look at that image, and while you look at it, I want you to enjoy this poem written and performed by Morgan Parker. It is from her book, Magical Negro. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Magical Negro number 217. Diana Ross finishing a rib in Alabama, 1990s. Since I thought I'd be dead by now, everything I do is fucking perfect. Walking, reckless, and men, I suck their bones until they're perfect. I don't sleep with accolades. I don't get touched in the night. All men do is cry and ask me to be their mama. I can't get a decent fuck to save my... When I think about their feelings, I don't care. It's cool, it's cool. Come to mama. There is so much death here. She is casual and almost fragrant, like the word kill doesn't sound as bad as it is. All my friends are sisters and husbands. I'm afraid to be uncharted. I want an empire in my teeth, but I can't be bothered to wear anything but silk. I have grown up less mysterious than my myth. All men do is think I'm looking at them. When I think about them tasting me, I don't... I mean, don't Google my tits when you can just... Unfortunately, I have a body... And I'm the only one in charge of it. You know what? I eat the bones, too. I'm in the world. I'm in the world. Nobody cares where I came from. I uh, am thinking about how white women and white men play a role in this book throughout and uh, in an uncomfortable way, I think I would I would say I was uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> At least your name's not Matt. That's what I'm going to bring up. How do you know? <laughs> um, you saw my face and you were like, he's going to bring up Matt once, isn't he? I mean, it's hard not to. Well, it's also really compelling. I mean, it's one of my 
you know, maybe I'm biased, but it's a chapter I'm fascinated by. You have another quote. I'm going to, I'm sorry, I have to do it to you. But you said in an interview, Matt doesn't come to the cookout. There are parts of our lives that necessarily cannot be intertwined. And this hovers over the relationship. I just feel left out of the whole possibility of love and romance. I hate that that is related to my race, and I hate that I believe it. I hate that I have felt it for so long, and I hate that white women have it so easy. Now, that is a, a quote in response to your uh, piece on here. I forgot what it's called now. It's just called Matt. Matt, That's yeah. Good. Which is, <laughs> there was no other time. I like, no, thought about no. it and was you like, well. <laughs> Matt, Matt, and Matt or something. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So Matt is, is a stand-in for all the the white men you've dated in your life or have had some romantic entanglement. Mm-hmm. Situationships. Situationships. And many of whom are were literally named Matt. So Really? Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just a thing. What do you think it is? I don't know. I think it's like whatever my age is and what popular names were, I guess. But it's also, or what I was trying to figure out in the poem was like, is it a particular type of guy? Because mm-hmm. they were all kind of that particular type of guy. So now Matt is like a slang for that type of guy that's okay. like wearing flannel and like doesn't think of himself as a white man and is like, you know, mm-hmm. listens to Modest Mouse, but also Kanye. Like that is a type who mm-hmm. um, studied comparative literature. You know, it's a thing. And I wanted to create a shorthand that I that we do like in conversations and like in small circles, but to build it out. And I've been so surprised at how much people are like, yep, I know that guy. Or I am that guy. People come up to me and they're like, I'm Matt. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, <laughs> I just met you, so I have nothing against you. But then they're like, no, but I'm really that guy. <laughs> I don't know why someone would do that. It's amazing to me. It's super fun to like see a poem live in the world and do its own thing. Mm-hmm. So often women are like, oh, yeah, this has been sent around our group text. <laughs> like, And that's cool to have a poem like take on its own life and for like a mat to be like in a little slang um, that folks kind of understand. And how would you describe for people who haven't read the poem, the kind of person a mat is? Let's see. The first one is Matt smokes unfiltered Paul Malls because Kurt Vonnegut did. Yeah. So that's that like. That was upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> that's a true statement. Not for me personally. I, I don't smoke, but. High school Matt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what it is is someone that means well, but it's a poem about the limits of meaning well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's about that empathy as well as about standards of beauty and who is allowed to have love and romance and what those relationships look like. Um, I grew up, you know, situationing (laughs) people like this, but always feeling like, I mean, they're not going to end up with me, you know, like. Did you know that at the time? Yes. Because it's like, I'm not going to meet your parents. You know, it's like very, um, I can't see these worlds colliding. And even the idea of these guys are cool, they like me, but there's no one else black in their friend circle. Things like that. And 
who their ex is and who's the person they date right after me. Like, what's the thing that doesn't fit in? And it's me. Um, So even though there's a personal connection, there's a cultural um, divide and it can't be penetrated unless it's (laughs) penetrated. It can't be... (laughs) I'm such an idiot. I wasn't going to say it. No. I didn't even think it. I'm so dumb. Anyway, uh, it's something that it will always be unless both parties are, like, aware of it. Hmm. And I think the thing about Matt is that he's oblivious. And it's, like, charming until it's just problematic. You found it charming. Sure. Yeah. Or it can be. Or you don't recognize how dangerous it is, I think, you know. And the other part that this comes out of is I was, like, trying to explain to the Matt that I was dating at that time that, like, I cannot separate our relationship from a master-slave relationship. And that's just, like, part of being an African-American woman. There's no way I'm not going to think, oh, shit, like, my ancestors with, like, a white man on top of them, like, the complications of that. And it's not to say that it reflects in the individual relationships that I'm having with these men, but there's no way I won't have one little moment where it's like, whoa, this is weird and fucked up, you know, Mm. Uh, just in the span of history. Because that's how my mind works. Like, there's a lot of repetitions and echoes happening um, on all these, like, planes of time. And you can't kind of ignore that. And I think that's part of what the poem is trying to say, that you don't have to ignore it, and it's better to just, like say it plainly, like, this is weird, and it's not necessarily the dynamic of our relationship, but, like, yeah, this is the reality of us being together. Why do you think you kept returning to Matt's in general, knowing all that that you just said? I think, well, society, and, like, society has told me what is desirable and what is supposed to be desirable for me. So these guys are like, I mean, they're not intimidating. They're nice, like, there's shared interests, etc. They're not problematic on the surface or even, like, meaning to be. So the only thing is that they're not confronting their own whiteness, but it's not like they're offending me on the daily or misunderstanding me. Like, Generally, they listen. Um, I don't know. I think there's something where you don't really realize how awkward something is until you hit a moment where you have to confront it, if that makes sense. Um, I can tell that answer doesn't answer it. It doesn't. You're not satisfied by that. I mean, my friends would be like, we don't know. Like, this person just stop with the mats, you know? (laughs) It's a, it's like a soft spot that I have. And I also wanted to, like, condemn myself a little bit for that. Like, why do I keep going back? And there is a little bit of, like, there's yearning, but there's also, like, disappointment. And they're happening at the same time. Yearning for? Yearning for connection and for this kind of light, casual thing. And so there's a way that the poem attempts that and tries to go along with that. And then it's like, oh, nothing can be casual, you Mm -hmm. know, because America. (laughs) So that's basically, you know, and it's a fun poem for me because it has jokes and it tries to surprise the reader. 
And when I was writing it, I didn't know where it was going to go. I just had been wanting to write about this map phenomenon <laughs> for a while. And I think I, I must have been thinking about it for a long time, like cataloging all these mats, because when I wrote it, it was like two in the morning, I remember. And I just like didn't stop. Like I was just like, I'm just going to get out the thoughts and then revisit it later. But I didn't edit it very much. I was like, this is kind of it. And as I was winding to the end, I could feel it happening. Um, but I, it was surprising me as I was writing it. Mm. Yeah, it was a way of kind of taking a really casual and uncomplicated situation and complicating it. Um, I didn't publish that poem for a really long time because I was like with a mat. And yeah. then when it came out, I remember I got all these texts of people being like, am I a Matt? I'm like, okay, Rob, like, <laughs> if you have to ask, my dude. Like, <laughs> But the Matt, at that Matt, um, was like, I love this poem, <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> I was like, of course. Like, he's the only one that's like, yeah, it's a very smart poem. Love it. <laughs> and also, obviously, <laughs> that's me. Think it makes some good points. Um, love the poem. We're gonna have to talk later, right. but I think it's the the prose so strong. Yeah, really. I'm not gonna send it to my parents, but I do like the writing. Right, horrifying. Yeah, it's a it's a fun one. I remember I was at college once, and a student. I mean, this is something that would only ever happen to a woman on like giving a presentation at a college. The guy was like, "So, are these all different mats you've slept with?" I was like, excuse me, undergrad? What in the world? I was like, that's not a question you can ask. <laughs> there, at that same college was another kid that was like, um, so I like Modest Mouse and I'm wearing a flannel right now. And last week in the computer lab, someone called me Matt, but that's not my name. And I was like, do you have a question? <laughs> What's going on here? But for some reason, it really like jostles something, it especially does. in young men. And I, so I love to read at colleges for that reason, because mm -hmm. it's also like, hey, girls, here's what to be aware of. It didn't bother me because I don't <laughs> like Modest Mouse. I just wanted to say that joke once. I think it touches and eats at white men. One, because it's foreign. Mm -hmm. hasn't really happened in modern literature before. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I don't, it doesn't happen very often. It's compelling, not only because it works dramatically, because it's funny. And anytime something's also funny, yeah, you're like, oh, fuck, it must be right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's also like such a good way of delivering the dramatic stuff, yeah. you know, to like also drop in these funny things that you can visually see because I know in this book it's like confront so much and think about so much but the way often to process that and present that stuff uh, in a way that readers can digest it is also speaking vernacular and using jokes and um, that is part of being honest 
if that makes sense. Um, there's no way I'm going to be able to deliver like the super painful and honest lines if there's not also this kind of um, levity. Yeah, totally. You know, throughout this book, and even in, in some of your past work, there is a streak of loneliness throughout all of this, which just comes with being a writer. Mm-hmm. In general, you are just, you have to be by yourself, unfortunately. Has that gotten better or worse for you? Mm, worse, I guess. It gets worse the older I am. You know, it's like, the more you go through the, the way, world. First question that you were like, Oh, I know it hurts. <laughs> it hurts to say. And I also feel like I'm constantly like in public just being like, can anyone love me? <laughs> like, it's just like, I did a recent thing. Where I was like, I'm single, like at the reading, mm-hmm. um, which is like not a time for me to attract people. Why, why not? <laughs> like, reading these why, is it, why is it not? <laughs> You'd be surprised. It's just not. It's a public forum. It is. You got a mass audience. It's really not my best foot forward. I don't think. I didn't say anything about that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's not a bad foot forward. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the real thing. (laughs) It's an interesting way of soliciting attention. Yeah. It could work. It doesn't work. I'll I'll tell you that. (laughs) But I'm trying to be be hopeful here. You know, part of that loneliness, and I'm only just understanding this, I've kind of exploring loneliness in my writing is not just that, I need another person here. But there is a kind of existential loneliness of, again, feeling misunderstood or or not um, connecting on a deeper level with folks or um, feeling alone in, in what you see in the world. It can feel a little bit like, are people not <laughs> recognizing that? You know, like that sort of thing, that loneliness of like, this is the world I'm in and it seems like everyone else is looking at a different world and how can we bridge those things and like talk about what we're seeing i wonder how it applies and how it informs not just your work but you living here in los angeles now because you came from new york Mm -hmm. you've been here for a few years yeah i felt your loneliness strongest in this one line which i was trying to find and uh, everything will be taken away after Adrian Piper. You like it at church when strangers hold your hand. I guess I'm curious how you're managing. Yeah, I always appreciate it when people are like, are you okay? Like, people forget to ask that. And this is, like, hard work. Um, I have two therapists, not even just one. Really? Um, I have well, three, not that it's me- a contest. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I mean, I take my pills and I go to therapy. And I was texting a writer friend yesterday about how I spent my whole therapy session this week talking about what I'm writing. And I was like, that's so stupid. Like, I shouldn't be like, that's my money, (laughs) you know. But he was like, no, we have to do that. It's part of the writing process and and part of making sure you're okay as you're thinking through ideas. And I, I have a tendency to just like go really hard and go deep. And like with this book, when I finished it, I was like, I maybe didn't have to cry and bleed so much, (laughs) you know, to do this. But that is kind of my impulse as an artist. So I have been thinking a lot more about how to protect myself and my own feelings because 
that loneliness is still there. Like it's you're going through all this. And even when the book is out, the book itself is a product. And in a lot of ways, so, so am I. So it is something where I need to. Yeah, I guess just have like a very solid sense of safety for myself, not only as I'm writing, but also as I'm releasing a book. I have a lot of friends who are writers and we have, you know, lots of little group texts that are mostly just like dumb stuff, which is really helpful. (laughs) Um, What else? Well, now that I live here, I'm just like a huge stoner because I'm just like at my house smoking weed with my dog and like having crazy ideas. <laughs> it's like my Joan Didion years, just like walking the dog. This and is your Joan Didion these, years. This right now. Is there a part of you that is attracted to being lonely? Probably. Do you think it helps your writing? I don't know about that, but I do think it's something that I'm used to. You know, the older you get, you settle into what you conceptualize as your thing, mm-hmm. your way of being in the world. And I think I've just like, it's comfortable to me to be sometimes I'm like, oh my God, if I did get in a relationship, someone has to live in my house with me. <laughs> like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> like, this is my whole situation. Um, That's it's, usually how it works. I know. I'm like, that sounds, oh yeah, I never considered that. Um, so I, it is something that I'm used to, like being alone, moving through the world alone, and having my own kind of space and like, agency over everything that's happening all of it is on one hand it'd be dope to like have someone help me with my various suitcases in the airport but also I like exploring places alone and just like wandering around and like eating oysters um <laughs> that's always what I do in random cities eating oysters it, just eating oysters at I a bar by myself probably still eat oysters with someone else Probably. I think it could be. I have done that before. Okay. But it is nice to. Was it Matt? To be. I've shared oysters with Matt's in my life. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Can't wait for the TV movie. <laughs> I do think that. I like that you know it's a TV movie. Without a doubt. It's like not. It's not worth anything else. Not lifetime, but like. A notch above. Like it could be like. USA or something. That's do they do one. movies? I feel like they do now. Yep, they do my movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It obviously it's part of the artist's mind. Like we always are going to feel lonely because there's crazy shit happening in our brains, even when we're being social. So there's that, but also just me being used to being by myself and like having my own space and all of that. But I also think that. Loneliness is valuable. I know myself really well, and I have been forced to confront myself almost daily, you know, because I'm having to have the kind of conversations and arguments that I would have with someone else. Um, It is also something that I think a lot about. I think it is possible to be lonely and not to be obsessed with loneliness as a theme in your work, but that is something that I'm generally just very interested in. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, New York is the loneliest place in the world, even though it was like, I had to move because too many people are like, you have to come to this reading. (laughs) Like, I couldn't get out of it. You had to move because of Across the country. Too many poetry readings (laughs) and like galas and shit. (laughs) 
<laughs> Mom, I'm sorry, I gotta go. Listen, a lot. This is the seventh reading this week. It's just a lot, and that's like not an exaggeration. You know, it's but somehow New York is very lonely, even though it's like people are constantly bumping into you. L.A. is got its own thing where it's like my neighborhood is so quiet during the day and I love it because I'm just like smoking weed and hanging out with the dog and like <laughs> writing poems like that's perfect but it is a place where you can kind of like separate yourself and so I am interested in loneliness that happens in social situations and I also think that that brand of loneliness is pretty American mm. and there's something that I'm interested in there. I wouldn't say you're obsessed with loneliness. <laughs> no, I mean, I can't be that. I, th- I think you have other things. In the same way that I'm, like, obsessed with slave ships, like which is not, like... That's not a great segue because I don't have that. You have a poem in here called A Brief History of the Present. Mm-hmm. You write, I know it's just a movie, but I'm still afraid of what I see when I fall asleep. I know the masses ask me every day for a eulogy. I know I'm supposed to say shot and killed, say brutality, to call my life a life. This is their language and not mine. When we were talking about the other in literature, I was thinking of examples in modern literature where the mass audience, and that includes white people, in Mm -hmm. fact, it really includes white people, Mm -hmm. said, oh, that's good and that's okay. And the two things I thought of were Citizen mm-hmm. and Between the World and Me. Mm-hmm. That year was, like, really intense. A hard year. Yeah. White people were just like, literature yeah. by black people. Yeah. I think Oprah put it on her thing. Yeah. It was, you know, and I love both of those books. Absolutely. Uh, but this, to me, seems connected to those books. I feel in this poem you're describing a kind of writing about a kind of subject, mainly subjects including mass incarceration, police brutality, mm-hmm. race, and Ferguson, or where any of these riots were happening. And I kind of gathered from this, and again, this is why you're here, because I want you to correct me. I kind of gathered that you were like, I don't think so. I don't think that's my lane. Hmm. And I don't think that's exactly the kind of art I want to put out into the world. Mm. And in fact, it seems that most audiences are, my most, I mean white, are really only okay if black people are writing about those explicit mm-hmm. subjects and writing about it explicitly. Not to yeah. knock those two books, which I still no, think are wonderful. No. Well, also, it's about writing about those things in a particular way. Right. Um, and this is very popular in poetry. Um, I never did, like, slam because I have several anxiety disorders. But it is a thing. <laughs> Plenty, okay? Enough. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to need a number I here. <laughs> I hate Martin Morgan. I hate to do this. Yeah, I mean, if you go to those types of readings, you can see that, like, the more painful or, like, the more the saddest one is, like, the one that people are drawn into. And somehow people are like, oh, that's best. And I think there's a there's an element of, like, trauma porn, you know, in books like that that are – I think this was maybe the year after that year was, like, all the books about slavery, uh, Underground Railroad – uh, and homecoming and all of, was it homegoing? Yeah, and I like I'm still behind on all those books because I was like I can't read 
a ton of books about slavery this year. Homegoing? Was it, is that what it's called? By uh, a woman writer. Yeah, by Yagasi, yeah. Yeah, homegoing. Mm -hmm. I feel like there are certain kinds of books written by people of color that white people like because it's somehow catered to them in a particular way. Um, I wouldn't say that Ta-Nehisi's book is like that or, or Claudia's, but there are certain cultural touchstones, you know, like hashtaggy things mm -hmm. floating about that people can easily be like, ooh, Black Lives Matter, this. You know, um, an interesting thing about Citizen is that it was written, I think it was written like before Trayvon. And of course, when it came out, everyone was making these connections to current things. And I've experienced that because like books take a really long time. and But when they enter the cultural conversation, they get read through that lens. And I remember talking to Claudia. It was like the first time I met her. And uh, this was kind of like a weirdly bold thing I did. It was like her friend was talking about the book and talking about the catalog of these microaggressions that is central to Citizen. But Claudia was talking about how the first part she wrote was the part about Serena Williams and that kind of section where it's doing something different. It's exploring something about blackness, but it's not providing these examples that I think that's what was really revelatory to white readers. They were like, oh, this small thing. And, you know, there was an element of teaching versus um, the subtler parts, I guess. And I remember telling her that that feels like the core of the book to me. And I also think that people will read that part more deeply later. Right now, folks are viewing it through the lens of what is happening right now. Mm -hmm. um, and Claudia was like, yeah, that's my, I like that part. And I'm, I do think that it's not that people didn't notice it. It's just that books last forever and they grow with the world around them. So even though books like that are often viewed really like one-sided, you know, or on one layer of understanding, these are books that you can go back to and back to and back to and it, different parts will be uh, illuminated, if that makes sense. And I've done this in the past, this kind of like making sure along the way to explain things and um, root everyone there. Um, and that's like a step that I decided to skip in this book because I know that that is what people are looking for. And just by being a Black woman, it's like people automatically are like, how are you going to respond to this thing about black people, <laughs> you know? And and I'm like, I just want to talk about being lonely, you know? Like, I think there's something there that all, as far as I know, in terms of my artist friends, we're all kind of feeling that. And um, I had a friend who had an exhibition recently, and she was like, I just want it to be like, chains and BDSM and not necessarily like responding to the political era of 2019. You know, mm -hmm. um, we're all just trying to make art. And obviously the world and politics make their way in. But I think often what these white masses are looking for from Black artists is some kind of explanation or guidance or lessons rather than, you know, just reading a book, if that makes sense. I, I think 
Yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, even just when I do readings, I never mention the president. Um, I've never written anything with his name in it because, like, this is my life. And I don't want that stain on my career. I talk a lot about the country and about current politics. And even just, like, on this tour— People would raise their hands and just be like, so what do you think about the election? And I'm like, I never mentioned anything Mm -hmm. about that. In fact, I've been talking about the country, but through the lens of truly like back in the day. And where did that come from? But it's like you came here to see me speak. And so you just like need something from me, I get like some kind of answer or solution or like expertise. Um, I remember someone was like, what should we do about America? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm an artist. Like, we definitely need to do something. But I'm not, like, here to, I don't have a PhD. Like, I'm not a politician. Um, America has a lot of problems. Could you fix them? Yeah, I'm like, I just, I said we need to do something. But, you know, it's, um, there's a way in which uh, a responsibility is placed on you. And it's a matter of, like, how you deal with that. I'm kind of like, I'm not here for that. And if you listen, you might hear some things that you can take away. But this is not the space for you to just be like, tell me what to do. There's a lot of, like, tell me what to do about my whiteness. um, Things like that that are not necessarily rooted in the text. And I can only have those conversations uh, so many times. As you continue to write in the new year in 2020, I'm going to continue doing this thing. (laughs) I am interested, how has this climate and this, I have to say, administration Mm -hmm. affected your work? Yeah. Really, it's distracting, you know? Like, I would like to write about other things, but I'm so just, like, inundated. And it's also, there's an... Like, I don't know what to say. You know, you were saying, like, there's nothing else I can say. And especially if people are looking to my art, you know, from the expert black woman, like, how to deal with that. I don't know what I can offer. Like, I'm as question marks around my head as everyone. It's distracting because you feel like it has to be incorporated into your art. I continually remind myself that my current concerns will make their way into the art anyway, But there is a little bit of a pressure that I'm pretty sure all artists are feeling to make this art in the age of, you know? Um, Yeah, just the cultural conversation about that art in the age of rather than, you know, (laughs) art. It's really scary. But more than anything, it's really annoying to me. I literally was texting a friend yesterday. What sucks about this is that artists, it's supposed to be our job to like make at least for me I look for moments of absurdism that I can shine light on or um, exaggerate something so that we're learning something but there's no you can't exaggerate anything no it's all SNL all day so where does that leave me as an artist I just have to like be super serious about stuff like there's not even jokes you can make he's taking our job it's that just by being idiots you know like oh it's so annoying that's the first time I've heard someone say <laughs> you know it's just kind of annoying it's just like what am I supposed to do now you know <laughs> 
It's really not fair. It feels like we have gone like 30 steps backwards. Yeah. And then I'm like, ah, I don't know if we're going to get back to even I know where we were. And we weren't even... We weren't in a good spot we anyway. We weren't in a good spot yeah. anyway. <laughs> even when Obama left, it was not a good spot. Mm-mm. It also was like, who am I talking to? It feels like you're kind of talking in circles. And even the idea of audience has changed mm-hmm. because the audience is in a different mindset and in a different world and all of that. So it really is kind of complicated as an artist to remain true to like your vision. And um, I guess there's so many things I want to explore in my art that I feel like I can't right now because I'm just too distracted and exhausted by the stuff that feels like it's made up but is real. It is uh, terrifyingly real. But in this interview you did with the Paris Review back in 2016, you had this quote I liked. You said, In your work, one of your primary interests is exploring the line between awe and reverence and also exploitation. Where is that line? What does it mean to be at once upheld and at the same time continually made to feel less than? Mm-hmm. Now, you're talking about your work and you're describing the relationship people have to artists that are not you. But where is that line for you in terms of how you want to be treated? Mm-hmm. Like Moving forward, how do you want to be treated? As a whole person, as my career goes on, I think a lot about how we treat artists and and... It's hard because I'm I'm like an extroverted introvert. Mm-hmm. So like I can turn it on. I'm like a Sag. So I can turn it on and but it, that I know this. I mean, I know I know you've turned it on for this podcast. Yeah. Uh and I tr- I was trying to convince you this whole time that you didn't have to. I know, but this is it. This is the on switch, you know. I know. Uh, I'm trying to public. Like turn it off. I know. I think sometimes you've turned it off. Yeah. I am a whole person, but I do think There is a way, you know, I was on tour like the whole year, basically. Um, So it's a lot of just like stages, standing in front of people and being presenting this product. So I think one big thing I'm trying to point out, and you can find it all over the books, but this idea of, of taking care of one another and not seeing something on the outside that looks put together and uh, just like moving on. And again, that's that empathy, um, putting yourself in the mind of another person. You know, I get emails that are like, you must be, oh my God, I can't believe your schedule. You must be, but also can you do this thing for like $50? You know, and it's like, where, how do we get Mm -hmm. from A to B? Um, There's a poem in the last book that used to be longer and it's like what Beyonce wouldn't say on a shrink's couch and it's do you want to read it well it's like two lines so I maybe can remember what if what if I said I'm tired and they heard wrong said sing it and every time I read that people are like yeah amen and I'm just like no but really like I'm tired (laughs) and it's like it it totally people missed it they're like, I know, right? And I'm like, no, but help me. <laughs> you know, it's things like that, like just focusing on humanity, you know, and focusing on the person rather than the person as a life that matters or doesn't. Yeah, I think we all just need to take care 
And it's hard to focus on the individual when we've got these larger political groups and groupings and concerns. But it's really a time, I think, when we need to return to caring for our community members on a very basic human level. So I think that's something that I'm really considering in my art and I'm considering in my life as like feeling um, allowed to ask for that and demand that of, you know, my community. Well, I uh, thank you for caring enough to come here. Thank you. It was delightful. And to sit with me. First show of 2020. Yeah. You did great. Thank you. Uh, Morgan Parker, thank you so much. Thanks. our show special thanks this week to morgan parker for being our first guest of 2020 to read and purchase her work including there are more beautiful things than beyonce and magical negro you can visit her personal site at morganparker.com to learn more about morgan you can visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com there you'll find a back catalog of episodes with a bunch of writers I like, including Gloria Steinem, Nathaniel Rich, Shay Serrano, Jelani Cobb, Doreen St. Felix, Jeremy O'Harris, and many, many more. Talk Easy is available to stream on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. The best thing you can do to support the show right now uh, is to share it with a friend, to share it on social media. And uh, we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And so every bit of public support really does help new listeners find the show. As always, this podcast would not be possible without the team that makes it. Our show is executive produced by Janixa Bravo. Our editor is Andre Lin. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Design by Ian Jones. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our engineer is Tim Moore. We tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. And welcome back. I'm excited to do this thing in 2020. It's going to be a big year for the show. And uh, I hope you stick around. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Haley Bennett. Until then. Have a good week, everyone.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.